Hello everyone, we are The Peace Project. Our platform is used to show the spectrum of Asian American and Asian voices around the world. Check out our Instagram and our blog for more information. Our platform was created by 17-year-old Arden Young. Check out her Instagram for more info as well. Hi everyone, my name is Audrey Sun and I'm from the greater Boston area. I'm Chinese American and I'm an ambassador for the Peace Project. I love playing violin, acting, and learning French. Hello everyone, my name is Benicia Jude. I'm your classic California girl. I really like Harry Styles. I love making playlists. It's so, so fun. And um, I really look forward to this episode and like getting to know you guys and getting to really dive deep into this topic. And I'm Deneen Macariola, who's a media curator here at Peace. I'm a Filipino-American who loves the visual arts, so it's nice to meet you all. Our episode today is actually about colorism. Colorism is a global issue, and today we just kind of wanted to break down different cultures' experiences with it. For those of you who don't know, colorism is basically a form of discrimination based on the color of someone's skin. When it comes to skin color, a lot of the time, lighter skin is associated with higher socioeconomic status and often comes with more privilege. Yeah, and just to clarify on Audrey's point, colorism is different than racism. Colorism deals with the discrimination of people based on their skin colors, even with a single race within a single race group, uh, while racism usually happens between different race groups. Yeah, and to add to what Bonisha just said, it's important to also realize that colorism is just a symptom of racism. So when we address racism, we'll have to impact colorism as well. So the first thing we're gonna talk about is the capitalization of colorism. Um, companies often capitalize on the idea that the solution to any problem is to whiten your skin. Yeah, Audrey brings out a great point. Colorism is basically a multi-billion dollar industry in Asia and so many other continents and countries, and it is subtly marketed in the American economy. Uh, the industry is growing astronomically worldwide. For sure. In the Philippines, for example, despite regulations for skin whitening and bleaching products, there's been a growing demand for these products even still. And although these products are associated with cancer risks because of the known carcinogens that are agents for lightening skin color, people still want to consume these products either because they're uninformed about the risk or they're just willing to take these risks because of the culture surrounding light skin. And Deneen, you're from the Philippines. Do you have like any personal experience with colorism and kind of like... How did you deal with it? Yeah, first and foremost, I just wanted to address and acknowledge my privilege as the light-skinned person of color. I understand that I'm afforded liberties and advantages that aren't available to dark-skinned individuals and that I'm unfairly placed on a pedestal by this system. However, the reason I still wanted to highlight my experience with colorism is that as one of the lighter-skinned Filipinos in my greater extended family, I feel that I can showcase some common forms of how this can manifest itself and also how severe colorism can be. Colorist culture revolves around not only obtaining but also maintaining light skin. For example, both dark-skinned and light-skinned Filipinos contribute to the consumption of and demand for these whitening products. 
Societal pressure and conventions of beauty pressure darker skin POC to become lighter and make light skin POC feel paranoid about maintaining their current skin tone. For example, my mom is light skinned and she still buys these special soaps and products with lightening and brightening properties. And although she means well, she often also mentions how lucky I am to have inherited her skin tone rather than the dark skin that characterizes my dad's side of the family. I was able to avoid whitening products only because of the fact that although I was encouraged to use them, they caused me a lot of irritation that aggravated my eczema. Secondly, all manner of people, no matter how young or old, inevitably become caught up in colorist discussions. For example, my aunt posted a photo of her new kid on Facebook, and she was only a month old, but one of the first comments people had to offer were to point out how she's darker than her mother and morena. While not necessarily an offensive word based off of technical definition alone, the social connotation of being morena uses it as a term to label and differentiate dark-skinned Filipinos, which is why um, YouTube personality and actor Asia Jackson created this hashtag on Twitter called Magandang Morenex, which is used to showcase photos of beautiful dark-skinned Filipino women in order to reclaim this term and also showcase how they also have their own brand of beauty that people should also try to appreciate. I've also noticed that even Filipinos who are relatively lighter or not very dark skin can still be labeled and shamed as such. This shows that colorism is only about your skin tone on the very bare surface level. Deep down, what it's really about is proximity to whiteness and attempting to minimize that distance until there's really nothing left. This results in this cycle of internalized inferiority and colonialism that traumatizes POC populations and societies. Lastly, I just wanted to touch on something I first experienced within my own family, especially from older generations like my grandparents. One way that people might complement light-skinned POC from more commonly darker-skinned cultures is by insinuating that they look like another ethnicity that may have stereotypically lighter skin. By this I mean, light-skinned Filipinos might be complimented by people saying they look Korean or Japanese. It goes to show that even within the wider Asian umbrella, societies perceived as having stereotypically fairer complexions are heralded by more commonly darker-skinned societies as paragons of beauty, which is another way that colorism manifests itself. Thank you so much for sharing your own experience with colorism. It's really important to understand the difference perspectives and the spectrum of colorism itself. Even if you're a light-skinned individual, you can still experience a lot of the debilitating effects of colorism in your own community or racial ethnic group. So I thought I could probably speak a little bit about my own experience being a Indian American. In India, colorist ideas permeate through every aspect of society, from the entertainment industry to beauty to literally marriages. Colorism in India is a byproduct of British colonialism and imperialism. Many historians connote the extreme colorist beliefs in India to the British regime and believe that the British exasperated the issue. Due to the fact that people in power were the British and often lighter skin white people, the country, the country associated power with whiter skin. 
in the wake of the BLM protests, many Indians began to vocalize the growing need to dismantle their internalized colorism. Brands like Fair and Lovely that capitalized on it scrambled to rebrand their products that promoted colorism. Uh, for example, Fair and Lovely decided to change their name to Glow and Lovely. Yet, this seems a little bit counterproductive and very performative because the entire basis of the product itself still remains. It's still used to lighten dark skin, hence promoting colorism. So as a child, my own personal experience with colorism really translated into the entertainment industry. Watching Indian movies almost felt othering. Even though the characters were Indian, they didn't represent what I looked like. I was a dark-skinned Indian girl, and I felt all of us dark-skinned girls were underrepresented in the film industry. I felt even worse when a boy once told me he wouldn't date me because of the color of my skin. I didn't like him in the first place, but the comment itself left a strong aftertaste. To me, it felt less like a preference, but more of a comment that lighter skin is more attractive and that my dark skin makes me less than. Wow, that boy is so awful. Thank you so much for sharing your experience with that. I definitely think it's so important to remember that it's not just the fact that he commented on your skin color as a preference for dating that is important, but also that the consequences of that, I guess, um, insidious feeling you talked about that it leaves behind. We wanted to include an interview with Ria Nair of her speaking about her own experience with colorism as an Indian American. First off, thank you so, so much for allowing us to interview you and hear your perspective. Um, I think my first question is, what is like your specific experience with colorism? Is it more concentrated in America or India? Like, how was how is your experience with colorism? I think actually the ones that I remember are not, you know, kids here saying any of that and like non-Indians, it's basically the relatives. Um, uh, like they would say things like, uh, have you been going out in the sun a lot? Because um, I've always been, you know, this skin color, relatively dark, but like I do tan a little and they kind of would would have liked me to not be in the sun as much which was mm -hmm. I hated it because I love playing in the sun I still do <laughs> and so I I never really thought about that like you know having to wear uh, hats and stuff to keep my skin lighter or anything I definitely empathize with that and it's something that's very relatable as a dark-skinned Indian myself um, I guess my next question is, have you ever really internalized colorism and how has that affected you? I have uh, internalized my colorism before. Um, as I said, I knew that, you know, um, it was wrong and my skin is fine the way it was. And I never acted on anything, but uh, I did at some points wish that I was lighter skinned and I didn't really know why either. Um, I just thought it was prettier. Um, I, I can't remember the last time I felt like that. Um, because, uh, you know, our generation, we, do, we have been seeing a lot of anti-colorism work going on, which is great. So it, it stops that, like, internalization. But um, 
yeah, even when I was in elementary school, I knew that it was wrong, and I still wished I had lighter skin, (laughs) so. Yes, I can relate to that wholeheartedly. I know how difficult it is to accept your dark skin and accept that it's beautiful, so thank you so much for opening up about that. Um, I guess my next question is, how did you reverse that internalized colorism? I think it was mostly seeing other people, um, like, doing anti-colorism work and seeing, like, dark-skinned models and things like that that um, showed me that dark skin is pretty too, you know? Um, I think especially, like, I follow a lot of dark-skinned models on Instagram right now, just, like, to support them, but also to, like, show myself that, like, you know, they have my skin tone, and they're, like, gorgeous, and they're, you know, living their best lives, (laughs) and I can do that, too. Rhea, thank you so, so much for this interview. Your insight has been just wonderful. I hope to see what you do in the future. And colorism is prevalent throughout the East Asian countries as well. Um, For example, in Japan, pale, almost translucent skin has been the ideal for hundreds of years. And Bikahu products, which come from the words for beauty and white in Japanese, are quite popular. The high-end brand Shiseido says that while none of their Bikahu products bleach skin, they do reduce melanin and often end up in harmful blemishes. And there's also a trend of glass skin. Um, a smooth, snow-white complexion that is idolized in many East Asian countries. And this comes from the old idea that dark skin signifies working class or always being under the sun and in, in fields. And pale skin was a sign of higher class and therefore beauty. This association of class and lighter skin is a commonality in many cultures beyond Asia that prize fair skin. And so my experience with colorism hasn't been a huge part of my life growing up um, in America, but there are definitely instances where when I look back, I can feel the impacts of internalized um, colorism. So when I visit China, the first comment I always get after, wow, you're so American, is about how tan or dark I am, even though I'm not dark at all. Um, I'm just... I'm relatively light-skinned, but in China, I'm bombarded with images of women with pale, um, translucent skin on advertisements, in TV shows, and in movies, and I'm told, don't get too dark, or encouraged to wear more sunscreen, which literally doesn't even prevent you from tanning. A few weeks ago, I was out buying foundation with my mom, and despite repeatedly telling her what my shade was, she insisted that I was fair or the lightest color there. Eventually, she made me buy a foundation that honestly didn't match with my skin at all because it was so much lighter. And at the time, I honestly didn't even realize why she was saying this. And even though I'm relatively privileged, like I can definitely find foundation in my shade. Um, it's It's not really a problem. I've realized that colorism is something that still affects the way Um, my family and I see the world even if it's not like super overt and I think my experience here demonstrates the fact that um, colorism just has become so normalized that it's almost sometimes hard to recognize in daily life. (music) 
We wanted to interview Kavita Rai about her experience with colorism as a brand ambassador for the brand Live Tinted and just an overall really cool person. So glad to have you, Kavita. So could you just introduce yourself to the Peace Project? Yeah, so my name is Kavita Rai. Um, I am 18 years old. I'm a rising sophomore at University of Southern California, um, and I'm studying public policy and law. Um, and I've just always been very invested in, you know, thinking about world, the world's critical issues with an equity lens. And so that's led me to being a part of um, organizations like Girl Up, which is a um, an initiative of the United Nations Foundation, which tries to promote global gender equality um, through education, um, service, and advocacy. And so um, in high school, I served on their International Youth Advisory Council. Um, and so this was like pretty much my introduction to advocacy. Um, I had a Girl Up chapter at my school, and it was really just a great way to collaborate with my community. And also more than that, it was just a way to, like, it, it was a really rude awakening, I think, because I was so confused as to like how these people could not care about, you know, issues that don't necessarily pertain to them, but deeply matter and, you know, inherently, indirectly um, affect their lives. And so that's been something that I've always carried on as, a, you know, a critical question in whatever I try to do. Um, most recently, I, um, I, I started this organization called Justice in the Classroom, um, which is mobilizing students to fight for education equity. Um, and so we have six proposals that we're really working closely with school districts to um, promote and, and actually, um, you know, acknowledge and rectify the racial injustices that are apparent in our um, school systems. And so that's really where I've, I've focused my efforts. Um, and most recently, I was diagnosed with um, Hodgkin's disease lymphoma, um, which was an insane turn in my life um, at 18 years old. But again, I think going through that just exposed me to so many things, you know, within the healthcare field, you know, what health equity looks like. I got treatment, um, chemotherapy treatment done at the Children's Hospital in Los Angeles. And so going there every day, it was like hearing new stories from nurses or overhearing families who, you know, can't afford to pay uh, pay health their health bills, right? And so going through chemotherapy amidst a pandemic was insane. Um, but again, it just showed me that like you cannot really look at the world without an equity lens these days. I mean, at, at all, really, ever. Um, and so it just it made me realize also that you know advocacy at its core starts with you know learning how to advocate for yourself, which is something that. I've really tried to champion and embody um, throughout my activism. Yeah, it is so inspirational to be interviewing you because you're definitely someone who is so accomplished and who's really passionate about advocacy and activism. So I guess my first question is, what is colorism and what is it to you? Yeah, I mean, colorism at its core, like I feel like it, it has so much to do with your identity, which is... I feel like colorism is an interesting conversation to have because it really deals with, you know, the internal racism within your own culture, right? Colorism is about um, essentially, you know, this idea that, you know, 
there's, you know, fair skin or, or white passing um, individuals within a culture that are looked at as better or, you know, are, are something you should strive towards. So yeah, I mean, within, you know, my own family, within my own culture, I have definitely been, um, you know, a victim of, of colorism of, or I don't want to say victim, but, um, you know, it's something that's definitely affected me growing up, you know, it was those same conversations of, oh, you know, don't go out in the sun, you know, don't go to the beach, you're already getting too dark. And so I remember like, really, really trying, like, really trying hard to like buy bleaching creams, you know, and these are things that were normalized. My, my mom would go to the Indian store and buy Fair and Lovely, which is a bleaching cream. Um, and at the time, I thought, you know, this is what I like, I need to be lighter, you know, and it was this idea of how proximity to whiteness is proximity to popularity, to safety, even to validity. Um, I was having a conversation with my friend and we were talking about how so much of, of our, you know, our decisions are related to validity in, in relationships, in, um, you know, just appreciation of our identity, and that validity is inherently tied to proximity to whiteness. Um, and so that's why colorism has always been something that has deeply affected me and has influenced my activism, because how can you, you know, advocate for anti-racist ideology if you know your your culture is still inheriting colorist ideals right of you know fair skin is superior and so i really think these conversations before you can even start advocating start having you know you need to start having these conversations at home um which i think is is something that a lot of people are are recognizing now uh, the hypocrisy of of you know saying that you are for anti-racism for you know supporting um you know the black community through solidarity yet you subscribe to such colorist ideology it's it's something that we, uh, the south asian community which um for the record I'm, I'm south asian um has to deal with and has to acknowledge yeah thank you so much for um sharing about that and i know you talked a lot about sort of colorism in your family and like in your personal life and i'm just wondering how do you think I guess America has contributed to these colorist sentiments and ideals. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that we have Eurocentric beauty standards that have, you know, created these, first of all, unattainable um, standards of beauty. But now we are actually at a very, very, I feel like turning point where now we're not even just seeing Eurocentric beauty standards, but we're seeing an appropriation of, of certain ethnic features. And with this appropriation, I mean, not to get it twisted, it's still an idea of proximity to whiteness that these, um, you know, these appropriations of, of ethnic features, like, you know, bigger lips, um, you know, uh, even, you know, I think there's, you know, a whole new trend on, um, like, um, I, I don't know what it's called, the specific eye, like that, it, it, the eye trend of, the fox eye, the fox eye trend, right? All of these ideals that are now claimed and deemed as beautiful um, by the white media, but have never been, you know, it's been something that's been, you know, communities of color have been ridiculed for. And now all of a sudden, white communities are profiting off of these features, right? And so that's a contribution to, um, you know, not just a, a colorist um, 
ideology of, of saying, you know what, these features are only good when they're on lighter skins, when they're on white people, when they're promoted by, you know, uh, white media, right? It, it's not even just that, but it's also, you know, how, the appropriation of, of ethnic features as a whole. And so um, I definitely think that the way we portray beauty in the media um, perpetuates colorism. Um, and again, this idea of proximity to whiteness. Um, thank you for bringing that up. Our next question was actually, um, as an activist, how do you personally think um, colorism and racism from there should be reversed? Like as far as like repaired or... Okay. Um, I think first we need to start amplifying, um, you know, we need to start amplifying different skin tones um in beauty campaigns in magazines and tv shows um and that these like these different identities that have different skin tones i mean and oftentimes it's the same culture different skin tones right i'm speaking very specifically to my own south asian heritage where there's so much disparity between indians who are fairer skinned versus Indians who have darker skin tones. Um, and to me, it really is all about representation. And it's about having these very difficult conversations with your family who might stand in solidarity with the black community, but will not acknowledge um, their colorist ideologies and will not acknowledge, you know, the racist rhetoric behind telling you not to go outside because you'll get too tan. That is unacceptable to me. That is hypocrisy to me. Um, and it's detrimental to the well-being and self-image of so many um, young uh, BIPOC um, youth. And it, it really starts with having these difficult conversations and, and pointing out hypocrisy to relatives and family members. Um, and I think even more personally, it, it starts by, you know, as I guess an act of protest against Eurocentric ideals, to you know go outside obviously wear sunscreen but that who you know that's not gonna um that shouldn't stop you right from um you know being going out because you're gonna get tan you know that seems like such a dumb thing but it's such a true statement that has been told to me and i know so many people who who've just been told like oh don't go outside you're gonna get too tan um or don't go swimming like you got really tan like you shouldn't do that again um, and just doing those things. And, you know, it's been a really, really long process for me to kind of accept that, you know, just because I tanned doesn't mean that I'm any less beautiful because I think we've been conditioned to believe that, um, you know, when we have fair skin in the winter or when we don't go outside, like it's much, you know, you're better looking. Um, and so rewiring your brain by just, you know, doing the, like, liberating yourself from these, um, you know, arbitrary boundaries set, um, literally by colonization, um, and inherited by, by cultures is something that I think is the first step. Yes, I can definitely relate to that. I think having conversations about our own internalized colorism is very important and calling it out is very integral to the process of, um, not exactly re reversing, but like repairing colorism and repairing the damage it has caused. 
Um, so one of the main reasons we decided to feature you in this episode is the fact that you modeled for Live Tinted, which is a brand that is created by Deepika Mutalia for dismantling colorism and really promoting inclusivity. So what was your experience with that? How did that really come about? Yeah, um, so actually when I was in high school, I was, as I mentioned before, I was um, a teen advisor for the Girl Up campaign, and that essentially just means you're on the Youth Advisory Council for the um, the Global Initiative. And so with this new role and platform, I realized that how can we talk about gender equality and not recognize the intersection of race and the intersection of, of colorism in so many communities? If we're, you know, talking about uh, gender equality in India and Uganda and all these countries that are af- like affected by colorism, why isn't this a conversation? And so I, um, I followed the, the account. Um, at first it, w- it was just an Instagram account before becoming a beauty company. Um, and, and I just pretty much cold emailed them. I said that, you know, I think it's really important that Girl Up and, and Live Tinted, um, which is the uh, name of the company, um, we sort of, you know, create a partnership or collaboration to address colorism and to amplify stories of girls, activists who face this and how it's informed their activist identity. Um, And so that's kind of how the initial connection came about. Um, And then a few years pass and I get diagnosed with um, Hodgkin's lymphoma and they have this um, like model cast calling. And I felt like for some reason, it was just such a critical time in my life to recognize my own beauty. I think one, because I just lost my hair. Um, and also for everything that the Live Tinted community stands for is about, you know, embracing who you are, your skin tone. Um, and so for me, it was just a really, really like pivotal moment to be a part of a beauty campaign at a time where I felt least secure with my own beauty and I think that reflecting on that it was just amazing to be a part of a community that you know amplified voices and amplified regular faces you know I wasn't a model by any means I just dm'd them um and so I think that that's what we need more of we need more of real people behind these campaigns and real and not to say that models aren't real people but I mean more so about emphasizing on the stories behind the people we show right because it's those narratives that can be very impactful and that's what I really loved about Live Tinted is that I didn't just get to pose in front of a camera I got to also tell my story I got to tell my story about you know what it means to be free the campaign was specifically um about launching their um product that was called free and at the time, I, I did not feel free. <laughs> um, I was going through chemotherapy. It was, I personally was under isolation at, before we even had a pandemic. Um, and so being able to talk about that and be very authentic about it just made me so much more inco- like comfortable with my identity and celebrating not just my skin tone, but, you know, my bald head at the time, um, you know, my journey with cancer all of it is inter- intersex, right? When you start to look at yourself as beautiful, you know, just with, you know, when you address, you know, the colorism you have within your own internalized self-image, when you start to love your skin tone, you start to love so many other elements of your 
body and an image as well. Thank you, Kavita, for uh, participating in this interview. Using your platform for activism and spending your whole life for advocacy is so inspiring and seeing that in a person of color, a person who promotes anti-colorism rhetoric, it's, it's amazing. And I just want to thank you. I hope to see what you've done and what, what you're going to be doing in the future. The next thing we wanted to really talk about was the superiority of Eurocentric features and how that ties to colonization and imperialism. I feel like the most prevalent example of this is just how we can see colorism in media. So many of the non-white characters that we see in films and TV shows are cast as products of colorism. They will often cast mixed race or lighter skinned actors or actresses rather than darker skinned people if they have the chance to. And for example, in Crazy Rich Asians, although most of the actors or actresses are Asian or Asian American, there is a lack of darker skinned actors, even though if you look at different nationalities and different countries in Asia, you'll see that we are actually a very diverse group and that there are a lot of darker skinned Asians that you just might not see or know about because of the fact that our image in the media is prevalently lighter skinned because of how they cast these actors. For example, the male lead of Crazy Rich Asians, Henry Golding, is Malaysian and English, but he plays a man of full Asian descent. And Naomi Scott was also mixed race and lighter skinned and she starred as Princess Jasmine in Disney's Aladdin from 2019. Yeah, Zendaya also starred in the Disney Channel show KC Undercover to represent a black family, although she is mixed race herself. And she openly acknowledges this in an interview that she does, saying, quote, she has a bit of privilege compared to her darker sisters and brother, unquote, in casting due to having light skin. She emphasizes that, um, quote, if I get put in a position because of the color of my skin where people will listen to me, then I should use that privilege the right way, unquote. And this is not to discredit these actors and actresses' abilities to perform these roles or to invalidate their experiences as people of color. Um, it's a reflection on the whole industry and the people who are in control, um, the leaders of that industry. The choices of these casting agents, directors, and producers emphasize the idea that lighter skin is more beautiful or more quote-unquote worthy in America, and it also contributes to the internalization of colorism. I think as we talk about the internal colorism in communities of color itself, it's also important to bring out the topic of colorism in communities that aren't of color. So we all know about this growing craze of tanning. Um, I think an important question that brings that has to be brought up is, what are the implications of tanning white skin on our POC brothers and sisters, and even ourselves? Even though tanning seems harmless, there's almost a sense of disillusionment that is associated with it. Um, I think a common question that even I ask is, how come a person can walk around with fake dark skin and reap all the benefits of it, the beauty standards, everything, but they don't get to face any of the negative conse consequences people of color face every day? So I think many of you guys know um, 
recently TikTok star Addison Rae was allegedly called out for blackfishing for a very, very dark fake tan. Uh, blackfishing is basically when someone is accused of acquiring black features through makeup, hair products, surgery, and um, what's really important about the recent controversy is that it started a conversation about blackfishing in American celebrities like the Kardashians and Ariana Grande. So, we wanted to end this episode with a short poem by Benicia called Ashes Turn to Gold, and the poem is dedicated to melanin. The blue moonlight glow and the blurred film tapestry romanticize the years of internalized apathy. Scenes of melancholy sighs filter your thoughts. When will you self-actualize the love you sought? You ponder, when will I love? When will I accept? And an all-too-familiar internal dilemma creeps and intercepts. The pigment in thine skin, the pigment in thine eyes, the unwritten history you unveil within. You remember you are the forgotten, your society's untold, until you hear the yearning hymn of melanin, ashes turn to gold. And be sure to check out the Peace Project Instagram, our blog, and we have a lot of new things coming out. We want to thank all of the new followers we have been gaining in the recent days. And we want to continue to amplify as many Asian American voices and issues as possible. We hope you all learned something new listening to this episode. And please feel free to share your experiences with colorism if you're comfortable by clicking the link in our Instagram bio. Um, Thank you, everyone, for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this episode.